struggling to open that Topo Chico right as the show begins. Queenie, across the way, you can validate that it is a Topo Chico. Yes, it is. That's what is on tap here on this edition of Other Side of Texas. Don't know where you're listening from. I saw some diagnostics, I guess what they're called. I don't understand the website stuff. But people in all these different countries, and we've got like faithful followers in New Zealand, and I think it wow back to yesterday because I talk like them <laughs> in a general range. Like I think that you can put the Aussies and New Zealanders and the West Texans in a, a fat-tongued vein, uh, the the category of fat-tongued <laughs> people. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Thank you more and more telling your friends that you hang out here on the other side of Texas. It is the aforementioned Queenie Catherine Wilkes. How you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> hey, uh, broadcasting from the studios where Buddy Holly became famous. And I uh, want to thank Todd Warren, those guys supporting the program. Go check them out. Lubbock's Digital Real Estate and Title Escrow Company. Title One is committed to providing you with the highest level of communication and service from the time the contract opens until it closes. See how Title One can serve your realty, consumer, and lending needs. A one-stop shop. TitleOne.com. So we're going to talk about the cost of losing local journalism more and more people becoming aware of that and I want to make the argument for how when people don't understand what's going on at the local or regional or federal level and we're just stuck in these algorithms on Facebook and keep on talking past one another uh, it can lead to the country's demise I'm going to get in with some national stuff but I think it it plays out. A lot of us are looking at newspapers across mid-markets and smaller in Texas wondering if those papers are going to make it. And I think that there's a reason why those who are doing good journalism, and by good I mean trying to be fair, why we need those folks in our communities. And there's even statistics, just to tease it, of the debt that entities incur once the journalist is gone and is not asking the questions any longer next week i'm going to be out we're going to be up in the mountains up on the ranch in the mountains no electricity but have good shows coming up but uh, i think one thing that people enjoy with this program are the interviews and we've got a lot of pre-recorded interviews coming up uh, we talk with ross ramsey every week we'll talk with him tomorrow but we've not heard ross's story before how he got to where he went growing up and and how he went through his early career working uh, in newspapers but also in different government offices and all the same thing as scott braddock what's his background who's this guy so that and and we're going to feature a five-part series with brandon roddinghouse who's a professor at the university of houston roddinghouse i believe i'm saying that right and he's a professor of texas government at the university of houston and we're going to put up a five-part series on the origin of the Texas legislature, uh, the history of the governor, lieutenant governor in the Senate, the House, and the fifth will be how in recent years, in recent times, the House has changed over to be the more moderated body and the Senate the more conservative body. So 
you know, how they've swung back and forth throughout time. And I think it'll be really informative for people who have kind of a 101 understanding of the legislature. I'm going to sit there and learn. And uh, we're going to record that coming up later this week. But speaking of the rest of this week, you know what it's like when you go on vacation. Like, kids are like, all right, we're going on vacation. The adults, it's time for some family feud at the Leeson house. I mean, it's like frustrations are on super high because you have to get everything done that's supposed to get done next week, this week, and then you want to be ready for the first three days whenever you get back as well. And it winds up being a huge headache. And tensions are high at the house right now <laughs> people are it's only tuesday and we're already beginning we're heading out friday uh, already bumping heads uh my little 10 year old is acting like the 18 year old that she is oh. the whole attitude and all already been grounded and jack and sam are just kind of watching and charlie is uh just taking cues when people are frustrated and uh, like pillow fights and other kind of fights, Charlie like sneaks off and gets a cookie because he's the smart one at the house. Um, but vacation is really a headache. Mm-hmm. It, it can't now. It's a ton of fun, and these are our magic moments together. But God, it's it's like every once in a while we have a lady come clean the house, and it sounds counterintuitive. Well, it shouldn't sound counterintuitive if you've got six people living in that house. It needs to be cleaned. But we have to clean the house before the cleaning lady gets to the house, which makes no sense. But we clean it all up, and then she does some stuff. And it invariably, to me, kind of looks the same in the end. So I don't know what your stories are about vacation. Uh, Are you guys going on vacation? Yeah, we're going to go to Washington... The 18th, I To the D.C. or the state? D.C., and then we're going to go up to New York for a day. For just a day? Yeah, I know. It feels like we need, like, two days. Are y'all flying into New York and out of New York? No, we're flying into Washington, I believe. Okay. So what are you going to do in D.C.? Well, I get to shadow the congressman, Barrington, for a day. And then we're just going to go... Look at you, big shot. I know, I'm really excited. You're going to come back a politician. (laughs) No, um, well, we get to tour museums and stuff, and go on all their trips and or um, like. Wow, your dad's big timing. Yeah. Have you ever been? No. You haven't. No, this will be my first time. I was in D.C. and I don't know what direction it is, but it's on the. I don't even know what avenue it is, but I was standing right by the Washington Monument Mm -hmm. on the curb on the corner that goes closest to the white house and then all these cops start coming out and i thought holy cow this is the presidential whatever this thing's called yeah like here's the presidential parade it's coming by and like the mexican ambassador like that car goes by with the flags on it and then i saw right through the back window as he rolled by i saw obama that's the only time i ever seen him in my life Really? And I thought, wow. and I'll tell you what, and some people are going to, in that moment, seeing him, I thought about all the nasty things I'd say. Not about 
there's some real criticism to be had. Yeah. But like the nastiness, I felt really convicted about that at that moment, and I've tried to lay off of it since. Yeah. Uh, on the na- now, I'm critical of both sides and critical with good reason. Uh, more critical of some than others, depending on how personal they make it. Mm-hmm. But uh, with Obama, that was. That was quite a scene. I hope you get into... You're going to be walking around with Arrington, so you're going to... Yeah. Has he already told you no autographs? <laughs> no autographs? No. He says that... Hey, Majority Leader, can I have your autograph? I'd, you know it would be great is if you were somehow... If you could just take maybe just like a wallet-sized portrait picture mm-hmm. of Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> have her sign it, and then save it for your dad for Christmas. Yes. That'd be a great Christmas gift. He would take it outside and shoot it. <laughs> he would. Yeah, he or would. Or he would just... Ha, 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 ha. And we need to get a Wade Wilkes soundbite on this program. Tomorrow's a big beer day here on the show. We're going to have talk about it here in a moment. But the Alliance for Beer, Rick Donnelly, going to come on the show. And we've got this craft brewer big beer thing going here on other side of texas and they want to come on so we're gonna let them come on and then we'll get into the cost of losing local journalism we were to have in this segment of today's program katie jane seaton of farmhouse vineyards to talk about the big boom of wine in big bad brownfield Texas, just west of Lubbock, but Katie Jane has come up ill and is unable to be on the other side of Texas today, so we're going to reschedule Katie Jane. Hope she gets to feeling better very soon. One of those things where she just uh, sounds like the kids gave her something that uh, we all get and glad that we don't have right now. It feels like I get sick like one day a week from something that the kiddos bring home but in lieu of wine we're gonna get into some beer tomorrow's program some of you who follow the program know that i've taken up uh, some sympathy with the texas craft brewers in a bill that was passed in the last legislature i wrote a piece it's there on our site other side of texas craft brewers and the big beer industrial complex it begins like this the beer industry in texas today is still regulated by a three-tier system devised in the 1930s a system that requires each of the industry's tiers brewing distributing and selling to operate financially independent of the others think of it in terms of the simpsons and that messaging has uh, caught on as i'm told and told and retold across this great state. Following prohibition, state lawmakers wanted to thwart the likes of Mr. Burns from acquiring Duff Beer and Moe's Tavern, then brewing and distributing Duff exclusively to Moe's franchises across the state. Monopolization concerns required ultra ultra wealthy Mr. Burns to choose only one of the tiers. He chose distribution wholesale distribution to be exact excellent so with that i do want to give people the opportunity uh, agree or disagree to come on the program and i've been 
contacted by the Beer Alliance of Texas. They represent the wholesale distributors. And on tomorrow's program, Rick Donnelly will join us, and he will give us the other side of the issue. Looking forward to the conversation with Mr. Donnelly tomorrow, I believe, in the third segment of the program. But to prepare you for that interview, those of you just tuning in, I want to give you a bit of uh, eight or nine minutes of the interview that we did with Brock Wagner, who is the founder of the oldest and the largest craft brewer in Texas, Brock Wagner of St. Arnold Brewing Company, joined us recently on this program. Want to get you acquainted with the issue before we get into tomorrow with Mr. Donley. The interview picks up with me asking Brock Wagner about the House Bill 3287 passed by the 85th Texas Legislature a little over a year ago, restricting certain operations brewers can have on their premises. It also requires breweries producing 225,000 or more barrels per year to sell the beer produced on premises to distributors and then buy it back from the distributors in order to sell on the premises. Thus, the controversy. Breweries owned by brewing giants are, however, exempted by the law. Here now from Mr. Wagner. So, that was an interesting bill. There was one group of constituents who was for that bill in the entire state of Texas, and that was beer wholesalers. Uh, breweries were all against it. Uh, yeah, consumers were against it. It's just a very small, uh, really a small number of, of men who who were in favor of this bill. And what it does is if you get up to a certain size, you then have to, if you're a brewery like us, uh, and we're not at that size yet, but if we get there, we would have to start purchasing the beer that we sell at our premises back from a distributor. So we, and what's even sillier about it is the distributor doesn't actually want to pick the beer up from us, bring it to their warehouse, then ship it back to us so that we could serve it. They'll just give us an invoice for what we take from our cold box and serve there at our, uh, you know, move to our barn and sell uh, just to get their bump tax. So that's one aspect to the bill. Uh, the other aspect of the bill, which is you have to get a little bit more into the weeds, but it's probably more critical to craft brewers in Texas, is it reduced the value of Texas craft brewers by about 50% because it makes us unappealing for any other brewery in the country or the world to want to invest in our breweries because it could, their investment could actually cause us to have to shut down our tap rooms. And our tap rooms are our number one marketing tool. You know, that's how people like to come visit breweries, experience us, taste the beer. And then they go out to other bars and restaurants and grocery stores and, and purchase our beer. So it sounds like you say a small number of men. Uh, this is the phrase that you used, beer wholesalers. But whenever it gets down into Austin and into the Pink Dome, if you got 76 on the House side and 16 on the Senate side, you've got a bill that becomes law. 
how was a how were the beer wholesalers or a small group of men able to push that through both chambers and then not receive the governor's veto in the end? Well, they're one of the largest contributors of political donations to uh, to the politicians in the state of Texas. Um, you know, their donations are in the millions of dollars every single election cycle. And that's from the governor, the lieutenant governor, and they pretty much blanket the entire legislature. So it's kind of one of those money talks, and uh, they're very lucrative businesses, and that's how it works. It, it's not about, unfortunately, this is one of those cases where it's not about what's good for the state of Texas, you know, the people, the consumers, uh, the overall economy. It becomes very much focused on on some individual businesses. Uh, I'm going to go through some rapid fire here, Brock Wagner, and I know that we value your time and thank you for coming in. But I've got, I want to know how you started. Did you start like in your bathtub or your garage? I mean, you saw an opening, obviously you saw an opening before 94 and knew that there would be the opportunity to establish, to found a craft beer. How'd you start? So I started out at a home brewer. I was actually in college. It was the RA in my dorm that taught me to homebrew. So technically, I am using what I learned at Rice, although this is not what, I, what my parents thought I was Wait, was it Rice in or. the dorm, Brock? Or was it in a residence? It was in, it was in the dorm. Nice. <laughs> nice. Those private uh, school kids, you, know, you never know. <laughs> wow. Well, and we, yeah, and I kept homebrewing. It, it really, that became my passion. I would do it on weekends after college. When I was, when I was working on coming up with uh, the name for the brewery, I started thinking, well, yeah, I wonder who the patron saint of brewers is. And I started doing research, and I found St. Arnold. He was a great guy. He was the Bishop of Metz from 612 to 629, and he was known for running around the countryside <laughs> telling all his parishioners, do not drink water. Water's bad, which was true back then. But drink beer. It's a gift of God. He was, he was a very popular bishop. Okay, so tell me, Brock Wagner, with what you've lined out with the bump tax and the cost of overhead production, but how much of people will notice that whenever they go to buy a six pack of craft beer, nine, ten dollars, somewhere in there, is that to absorb some of this bump tax and, and other fees associated with distributing? That really has to do with the cost of producing the beer. We are wonderfully inefficient businesses. Yeah. Uh, we buy the most expensive ingredients. Um, and, Brock, really about the, you can't expect to just buy it at 6 bucks whenever you guys are pumping 11% into it. You know, I mean, come on, this costs money. Yeah, no, it, it's expensive what we do. Um, and really, the, the cost of our beer is pretty much independent of these particular uh you know, those bills getting passed, okay. those bills have more to do with what the enterprise value of our companies are. Now, okay. I have no no interest in selling St. Arnold, and I've been approached by every, you know, major brewing company that exists, but should you want to, or if people are just looking to invest in your brewery, it has actually scuttled investment in some other small craft breweries after this bill got passed. Wow. So what we're faced with is be more like, let's say, your, your your parent broadcasting company was told 
Well, if you're purchased by a larger broadcasting company, you can get the frequency, but your show can't be aired anymore. Hmm. And Man, so you're really making it hit home now, bro. Yeah, well, that's kind of what, what that build does. So suddenly, nobody really is, is going to be interested in, in investing in the parent company of your, uh, you know, of your radio. No. Uh, so tell me, the, I've uh, talked with guys who took that vote, and this is what they'll say to me that took the vote against you in 43287. They'll say, look, we have a large number of people who work in these wholesalers and in these distribution companies in our district, and we voted for those jobs because this could be an upheaval to the entire uh, beer industry in Texas. What, do, what would you say to those who, who make those kinds of arguments? Am I allowed to say on the air? We can edit that out. <laughs> okay. Uh, that, that is the biggest bunch of malarkey that I've ever heard. Um, that is not going to cause distribution jobs to go away. It is, you know, distributors tend to, especially the lobbyists, like to create uh, craft breweries as boogeymen for them. I think primarily to make sure that the lobbyists uh, can keep their jobs. But every time the laws evolve in a positive way for craft breweries, the amount of craft beer that these distributors sell goes up. And they make more money selling our craft beer than they do the, the big mass-produced brands. It's this fear, this they view the economy and the market for beer as a zero-sum game. And I'm actually an economist by training, and I can tell you, every time you look at something as a zero-sum game and that's the way you start behaving, what actually happens is the pie shrinks. What we're trying to do is get these laws to evolve, which will actually grow the pie, and everybody will benefit from it. But there would be zero loss of jobs that would have occurred if they didn't pass that bill. That bill, that that is complete smoke and mirrors, look over here kind of thing. There's no basis to... to that statement. It's tough because we don't have the money to donate that the big brewers do. And unfortunately, as long as money becomes the uh, the driving force in politics, as long as that's the case, it's going to be hard. And you know, the end result may not be what's actually best for the state of Texas. We hope that you'll come back on as things begin to heat up as we go into the 86th legislature. Well, I appreciate your having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, it's been great. Brock Wagner, again, founder of St. Arnold. You go com, And there you go. Just like that, there's the craft brewer argument. Again, the piece I alluded to earlier is up on other side of Texas. And Rick Donnelly, Beer Alliance of Texas, be with us tomorrow to give the counter. Talk about his side what we missed what we need to heed 
But what we do know is with KUJ Seaton, Farmhouse Vineyards out today, we still found a way to talk about alcohol. And we'll be talking more tomorrow, just the other side of the issue. Serious for just a moment. And I know that I try not to get overly serious, but we need Why to get serious. So serious. Nice drop. There's a big problem emerging across the country, countrywide, into the countryside. And it has to do with journalism, state of journalism in America. And wherever you fall on this, whether you've got an inclination against mainstream media, I don't want you to think in terms of mainstream. I want you to think in terms of local and regional and the role of journalism and the state of journalism in regional and local areas. So Pew Research last June, June 2017, comes out with some findings on the state of journalism and i came across this a couple of months ago I always bookmark things to come back to them and heads up there are a couple of things bookmarked here that i want to begin to interface with this pew story headline despite subscription surges for largest u.s newspapers circulation and revenue fall for industry overall Following last year's presidential election, some major U.S. newspapers reported a sharp jump in digital subscriptions, giving a boost to their overall circulation totals. The newspaper industry as a whole, however, faced ongoing challenges in 2016, according to Pew. It goes on to say that the big dogs, like New York Times, added half a million digital subscriptions in 2016, up 47%, Wall Street Journal up. 150,000, that's 23%, and the Chicago Tribune added 100,000 in weekly digital circulation, that's up 76%. But these gains did not translate into circulation growth for the industry overall. And as a matter of fact, jumping down a little bit, says this overall decline in circulation coincided with a double-digit decline in advertising revenue for the industry as a whole. A separate Pew Research Center analysis based on the year-end financial statements of seven publicly traded U.S. newspaper companies suggests that advertising revenue across the industry declined even more sharply in recent years, a 10% decline. Uh, and that's multiple years in a row. The story will go on to say that there's been this decline. So the problem, of course, is the number one in economic supply and demand. There's the sense that, hey, we don't need this, so the supply begins to diminish. And where it begins to diminish is in uh, journalists and cutting back on journalists. And so my question then is, what's the cost of losing regional and local journalists last couple of weeks san antonio has been in the news last week it was san antonio's the fastest growing city in texas the week before it was that the san antonio express news eliminated around 20 jobs in the lead newsroom of the fastest growing city in texas and that's a problem peggy fecak amongst others peggy is uh, the dean of Texas political journalism was among those cut there at the Express News. What that means in San Antonio is hard for me to translate up from the Caprock, but I know that in mid-sized market papers 
in West Texas and around East Texas and South Texas, there's a critical role that these journalists play in communities. And even smaller than midsize, you know, I grew up in Abernathy, Texas, 2,904, and we had the Abernathy Weekly Review. Well, that paper lived on margins, did good work in that it reported what happened at city council, which all of like four Abernathy residents were would attend other than the city council people but at least you knew what happened at the city council not everybody goes and pulls some minutes it's easier just to read the write-up in the paper uh, then, but by and large not a lo- lot of hard-hitting local investigations they're just not staff for that but I will say last year I think yeah the Olton Enterprise uh, busted the business manager of the city for using water and land that he wasn't paying for. Uh, the Texas Rangers show up. So there are some uh, instances of of investigative journalism and a, a harder accountability at local levels. But again, what's the cost of losing journalism in these places? And I came across this paper that was written by a professor of business in the business school at Notre Dame and a couple of professors in the Department of Finance at the University of Illinois Chicago and they begin to answer the question of the loss of local and regional journalism and it starts with their paper starts with a quote from Thomas Jefferson where the press is free and every man is able to read all is safe And it says approximately 27% drop in circulation numbers for newspapers in the country 2003 to 2014. Huge state of disruption into the digital age. And that led to 35% decline in state house newspapers. Goes on to say that associated with all this is a lack of accountability, more government waste, more local corruption, less effective schools, in other serious community problems so whenever we're there are tangible costs quantifiable costs to losing journalists and they just laid it out with reduced local media coverage there is a removal of incentives of local politicians to work hard on behalf of their constituencies said another way they will run amok if you don't have good local media coverage and I would argue from newspapers that aren't after ratings as much as they are getting it right. It goes into security markets, and I want to stay out of those weeds, but it takes up uh, a local newspaper closure, for example, represents a neg- negative coverage shock that could affect borrowing, public borrowing costs because potential lenders have greater difficulty evaluating the quality of public projects and the government officials in charge of these projects now i think that big lenders have a way of looking at the legitimacy uh, and they can exercise those methods but i think local news coverage also helps them evaluate whenever there are i mean every community's got its projects its bonds things that are out there certainly in lubbock i can point to citizens tower however you fall on that issue it's been taken up in the media for sure watchdogs looking but back specifically to newspapers the pay this piece this paper uh, 
begins to discuss the Rocky Mountain News. With 250,000 subscribers, the newspaper closed in 2009. A search of Rocky Mountain News articles suggests that they provided valuable coverage of local government issues. Prominent coverage examples include the audit of questionable federal funds that were allocated to local sheriff's department, a handshake deal between the city government and Lufanza Airlines, which may have violated federal law, the lack of oversight for the 390 special taxing districts established in Denver metropolitan area and an under-the-table scheme at the Denver International Airport in which employees were being paid for underserved wages. It goes on to talk about the Cincinnati Post and... Uh, like the Rocky Mountain News, it is clear that the newspaper played an important government watchdog role. And so whenever we're talking about metro government, we're talking city government as a whole, anywhere, and the sorts of things that we're getting involved with through other public entities to have that watchdog there, I think it's very important. I've seen for myself local officials I've not seen this literally. I've seen it figuratively, but I've seen sphincters flex when Matt Dotre, the government reporter for the Avalanche Journal, shows up on the scene to ask questions about things going on. And that Freedom of Information Act begins to create a buzz. And, you know, even with... Uh, I've seen instances of people leaking stories to the press and a guy like Dotre will get a, a hold of it and he will vet the other side, and then the whole thing blows up in the leaker's face because check out the big brain on down the line and wants to get it right, and and I think by and large gets it right and does the community a service through that. Now, with regard to where all this goes, I, look, I, I'm struggling how I want to get this. Let me just say. Again, wherever you stand on the issue, I get it. Back in the late 18th century, early 19th century, newspapers, especially in metropolitan areas, served as propaganda pieces. And then you move Industrial Revolution into the mid-century, and newspapers began to see that, whoa, 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 we've got to try to be balanced because we can't get advertisers. They get wrinkled whenever we take one-way or the other and so there was this business thought at the time that we've got to become more balanced and there you begin to see the faces of the Walter Cronkites on the news as well uh, putting a face to all this but in this digital disruption some papers have I think the argument could be made for the New York Times good investigative stuff uh, but it does take its slant and they're unapologetic uh, some of them are unapologetic about it. Some of them pretend like they're still, quote-unquote, objective, as there are these online alternatives. And it's to the online argument, my concern in all this is that people say, well, now we can get this news online. And the same question that used to be asked about newspapers, well, who's deciding what you'll see? Editors are sitting there deciding you'll let your worldview be shaped by and large by the seven stories that they want to put before you. Well, what's putting it before you online? Algorithms 
of companies that are reporting to private boards that aren't concerned about the social good, just the money in their wallet. They aren't concerned about misappropriation of funds in any city in Texas. They're concerned about clicks and algorithms that reinforce people's points of view. And I'm looking at another Pew page right now, related stories to what I just read. Among among U.S. Latinos, the Internet now rivals television as a source for news. Yeah, okay, what's better, television or uh, the Internet? Okay, the fact of the matter is that the Internet is rising. More Americans are turning to multiple social media sites for the news. Now, there's the problem, because who's driving that news? And I think it's in this context. I'm going all over the place chasing rabbits. But in this context, I think that this is the moment where Jake Tapper's arrive, where he's going he's gonna to oppose the president, and then he's going to oppose Harry Reid. And he's going to go in those directions, and he begins to generate trust. Now, I do read the New York Times, if I can make that concession on occasion. And I read a Maureen Dowd piece about a month ago, and she's talking about hucksters and how hucksters run different entities. Here's the lead. Uh, con artists have always been slithering around in America. Huckleberry Finn tangled with men on the Mississippi River boats. There was a flirty snake oil salesman in Oklahoma, and Marion the librarian fell in love with a charming charlatan, Professor Harold Hill, in The Music Man. It was all part of an amusing American tradition of rascalians doing their little side hustles. But now it's not little side hustles anymore. And I bring up the Dowd piece to say, in this context of what's the cost of losing, well, we've talked about on the public sector what we can be losing without watchdogs but it begins to be a national security concern uh, yeah i am being serious again but it begins to be a national security concern because of a couple of things in the piece lanier says and lanier wrote uh, 10 arguments for deleting your social media accounts right now he's a scientist a musician known as the father of virtual reality uh, he says that business plans of facebook and google have served quote to elevate the role of the con artist to be central in society anytime people want to contact each other or have an awareness of each other it can only be when it's financed by a third party who wants to manipulate us to change us in some way or affect how we vote or what we buy he says in the old days to be in that unusual situation you had to be in a cult pass the kool-aid or volunteer in an experiment in a psychology building like in skinner's cage or be in an abusive relationship or at a bogus real estate seminar but now you just need to sign on to facebook to find yourself in a behavior modification loop which is the con and this may destroy our civilization and even our species okay well he's going a little bit further than i am but the point stands he ends we don't believe in government he says a lot of people are not happy with media they don't like education people who used to think the fbi was good now think that it's terrible and all these institutions are the subject of ridicule and that is post-truth ladies and gentlemen that's where we get into 
the argument has always been that liberalism wants to tear down and deconstruct institutions and you know conservatives are in their own loop here just like liberals and we're going after all these institutions and we begin to be bogged down into these algorithms right and so whenever you're in this algorithm this continuous loop of being reinforced what you already think then there becomes a lot more acrimony in the country and i want to segue that into michael hayden a retired four-star general former head of nsa and director of cia a man who knows a thing or two about espionage and hacks and cybersecurity has recently made an argument that the hysteria over jade helm 15 which if you aren't familiar is a military exercise u.s military exercise in six southwest well six cities and focus in the southwest in urban contexts to prepare troops who would be overseas potentially in other urban contexts and it got completely blown up by conspiracy theorists that there was going to be again this was within the obama administration people think things are crazy now i think that they were as crazy then on the obama side with people with all these theories and conspiracies and that the federal troops were coming in to marshal people round people up and that there was going to be a takeover and that sounds ridiculous whenever i explain that to my children they're going to scratch their heads but that's what we began to believe and all it took was these algorithm loops of ideological reinforcement and then a couple of crazies like alex jones and then Leave me alone, you politicians idiot. beginning to heed it and greg abbott did heed to it and that's what michael hayden writes him up for in in his book and in interviews now it's in these cracks that hayden's big concern has has emerged and that the greatest vulnerability in the united states in hayden's estimation and i'm being reductionistic with it but he makes this argument our greatest vulnerability right now is in the fact that we are in these ideological loops and there can't be conversations to be made and guess who's infiltrated those cracks the russians the russian bots and so with jade helm you had bots russian bots running that narrative and it's not just on stuff on the right it's stuff on the left as well black lives matter hands up don't shoot russian bots perpetuating that and even with instances of muslim marginalization to get people to target people in those algorithm loops uh to get them worked up and incensed and ratcheted up and sideways with other people and it's so easy not to treat people as people behind keyboards and that's the state of where we are and it begins i think at the local level like jade helm for local reporters to go in to interview military officials to see what's really going on and providing a service to the community that would just be one instance but i think that what's a vulnerability at the local and regional level is becoming one at the national level now my first day in my first journalism class at texas tech was the history of journalism with freda mcveigh a raspy uh, veteran journalist her first comment to us i'll never forget it 
she came in and she said now i know that some of you in this class think that you're objective and if you think that then you're full of something i can't say on the radio nobody is objective we all have the way that we are raised we've been raised to look at the world in a certain way and in that we've everyone discriminates and everybody has their biases and their preferences and then in a raspy old voice which several hundreds thousands millions of marlboros help make even more raspy she said but i can't expect you to be fair and you will be fair and that's what i'm arguing for is a fair kind of journalism that we can trust in trust and vet and run it up against other sources to see what's going on but to know that we've got that one guy that tries to get it right he's right seven out of ten times and that's better than any other medium right now so in my serious segment here about the state of journalism and how it begins to translate into a national insecurity just recommend this just think about it i do it i have my online subscription the avalanche journal wherever you live get your subscription and then guess what that journalist isn't some bot in some national reporter that you can't maintain regular con uh, contact with you call them up ask them questions send them an email because the cost initially is public finance and the cost in the end is a national security i really go jump on that vip line on my way home go right through racer car wash make that tundra great again voted lubbock's best wash for five years running for good reason five locations across the hub city go to racerwash.com for the best wash around hey coming up on tomorrow's program texas tribune's ross ramsey my political counselor i'll lie down on the couch we'll have a good conversation if you are just getting into texas politics i got a couple of emails from folks this last week that they are getting more and more interested this is a good place to start the ross ramsey my counselor and we'll try to get in with leonard t jenkins designated cotton stripper planning season is in fact vacation season we've been hard to reach them might be out in georgia might be out in nevada there in the j J flight and uh, we'll try to nail him down coming up on thursday we're going to try to touch base with ted mitchell who heads up the texas tech health sciences center and should have his own radio show uh, of course the texas tech health sciences center has been featured in governor greg abbott's plan to do something about school shootings in texas uh, the health sciences center has created this great mental health screening plan and uh, we'll get in hopefully with dr ted mitchell about that and on friday america's favorite rebel rouser that's rabble rouser breitbart texas's brandon darby who co-hosts this show each friday be in with us go through some headlines and uh kind of like robert O'Keen says whenever i'm with darby we just go 80 miles an hour down the dirt road and throw the steering wheel out the window so that's it for today for queenie and for fair journalism until tomorrow thank you for tuning in and hanging out on the other side of texas
One night in Kansas City, after we had played the show, shots rang out as I stumbled home. So I hid behind the dumpster and.